Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. Uh, I have to begin by recognizing that there are a lot of things happening in our world right now. Um, obviously, I think for, for most of us, the, the news that's dominating is, is Ukraine, as Ukrainians fend off this unprovoked Russian invasion. And even in Russia itself, as Russian stage anti-war protests, folks who are doing that at risk of being uh, jailed. But I'm also thinking of Texas and Florida with recent policies that have been targeting queer youth. Uh, and that's on top of, you know, the continuing stretch and strain of pandemic life, right? And those we know and love who are or have been affected by COVID, it's, it's a lot, it's overwhelming. And, and uh, I don't have enough tears for all the pain of the world, um, for all the ways that power exercised sinfully causes such deep devastation. And so Pastor Andrea's message last week about Jesus being the stronger one was such a timely word that no matter how things may look, that Jesus is the stronger one, that Jesus is the one that holds us together. Sometimes we may shout it out in faith. Other times we may feel like we can only whisper it as a prayer we hope to believe. But regardless of, of how we may feel the, the theological truth, the truth at the deepest, realist level is that Jesus has bound the enemy. Jesus has bound the enemy. That though evil intentions may triumph for a night, the justice of the Lord is coming in the morning. As is a habit for me in especially turbulent times, I've been returning to Psalm 46. We leaned into this a whole lot right at the beginning of the pandemic a couple of years ago, this reminder of the character of the God who loves us. A reminder of this great God's promises to all of creation, to all of us. The beautiful thing about songs and prayers is that we can sing them, we can pray them for ourselves to express how we're feeling, but we can also use them as prayers for others. The theological term is intercession. We're intervening on behalf of another. And so we can say these words, we can pray these words on behalf of our friends and our loved ones and even those that we don't personally know but who we know are affected by the brokenness of the world in a particular way. And so I want to put the, the words for Psalm 46 up on the, the screen. I want to ask us to say and pray these words together, both for ourselves and as a prayer of protection over those in harm's way all over the world, those who may not know if they can say these words and believe them, those who might only be able to whisper these words in fearful hope. So let us say and pray these words together from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God, as we come here this morning with any number of things that are weighing on us, weighing on our hearts and our minds, that um, God, we bring all of that to you. We know that you already know about it. We know that your spirit is already at work to bring life and, and, and justice and restoration into those places that you are already working to protect those who are vulnerable and those who are oppressed. And God, we pray that whatever is ours to do, Lord, you would make it clear to us and that you would give us the courage to step up and do it. And as we gather here, Lord, as we have prayed prayers that, that siblings across the world have prayed, will we remember that we are bound together in a mutual network that what affects one affects all of us. And so we pray even in this time as we gather here, Lord, that your spirit would be working in us, among us, and even through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the reminders that I want to give is that Lent begins on Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday services will be happening um, one of the things that we'll do this year that we did last year also is to have Lenten prayers on weekday mornings at 7 a.m. It's a time where we gather on Zoom and we just kind of spend some time praying and preparing our, our, our hearts for the day together. Uh, it can seem like there's no easy way to transition from the awful, difficult, challenging global and national and local events to looking at scripture. Um, and yet, the thing about Mark is that it's about Jesus. Jesus always has something to say to what we're facing right now. Jesus always has something to say to what we're facing right now. That's what we're reminded of in our anchor verse for this series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15, which is the first words that Jesus speaks in this Gospel. He says, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And so we've been asking every week for the last couple of months, what does the kingdom coming near look like? Where do I see it? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to change my mind about? What do I need to turn from? And then what do I need to believe? What do I need to put my trust in? What do I need to act on? What do I need to build my life on? So over the last eight weeks, we've seen Jesus teach and preach and heal and cast out demons. We've seen him clash with the religious leaders, and we've seen him welcomed by the crowds. And today we arrive at a story that many of you may be familiar with, the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil. It's actually the first parable of length that we encounter in Mark's gospel. And so let me say a few words about parables in general that might be helpful for you. One-third of all of Jesus' teachings in all the gospels were in parables one-third. There are longer ones, which read more like stories. There's a parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of a Gentile who helps a Jew who has been attacked on the road. Uh, there's the, the one that's often called the parable of the prodigal son, which is about a young man who makes a whole lot of bad decisions, uh, but comes to his senses and is welcomed back by his father. I'm not teaching those right now. That's why they sound really boring, but <laughs> Jesus makes them sound really good. Uh, but there are shorter stories as well. Right? There's a parable about a widow who essentially badgers a judge into giving her justice. There's one about the laborers in the vineyard, which Nikki read as part of our Kid City lesson last week. Or from the passage that Andrea preached from last week, Mark says, 
when Jesus called the crowd together, he spoke to them in a parable. And then, uh, as we heard last week, he proceeded to talk about a kingdom divided and a house uh, set against itself, and Satan is the strong man of the house. So sometimes parables can read like proverbs or riddles, sometimes as comparisons and contrasts. They've been described as similes and metaphors, comparison pictures, or as allegories where every detail represents something, and illustrations just to offer another angle or another perspective. All of that is, all of that is to say there isn't one structure for a parable. There isn't often just one point that you could take as, a, as, the, as the lesson for the parable. When I was, when I was younger, the, the version of Aesop's fables that I used to read used to have a moral at the end of every story. This is the one thing that you need to learn from this story. It's not always the case with parables. So you might take different things away from even the story that we're going to uh, look at today. Sometimes parables are used to make things clearer, and other times, uh, th not so much. Other times, Jesus actually has to explain what he means. And sometimes when he does that, he actually doesn't do it for everybody. And that's what happens here. That's what happens in this short story from today. So the setting is Jesus is back on the lake at the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching, as we've seen him do a, a few times already. There's a large crowd, which Jesus has attracted before. And this time, he actually uses the boat that had been set aside a chapter ago, if you remember he, the, the, the crowd was so pressing upon him that he told his disciples, get a boat ready for me just in case. And now he's finally using it. And the parable of the sower, the seed and the soil is just the first parable that he tells. There will be more to follow, which Lisa will talk about next week. Each of them will reveal something more of Jesus' message. You see, in Jewish tradition, parables were meant to be strung together. Okay? Each one showing a little bit more or a little bit of a different angle. And so here's this week's story. Jesus said, listen to this. Farmer went out to scatter seed, and as he was scattering seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where the soil was shallow, and they sprouted up immediately because the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it scorched the plants, and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorny plants. The thorny plants grew and choked the seeds, and they produced nothing. Other seed fell into good soil and bore fruit. Upon growing and increasing the seed produced, in one case a yield of 30 to 1, in another case a yield of 60 to 1, and in another case a yield of 100 to 1. And Jesus is using a picture that is very familiar to his listeners. At the time, he names three types of soil that do not yield a harvest, on the path, on rocky ground, and among the thorny, uh, thorny plants. And then three types, of, uh, three types of return, three sort of degrees of success, a 30, a 60, and a 100-fold return. Uh, there's some, here's some uh, ancient Eastern Middle, Mediterranean farming context for you. This, I think that might be helpful too. <laughs> ancient Eastern Mediterranean farming uh, background. Um, this is from New Testament scholar Mary Healy. She says, in, in Galilean agriculture, plots of land usually consisted of a thin layer of topsoil over a shelf of limestone. The seeds were sown by hand using every available space, and then they were plowed into the ground afterwards. So we think of farming as you plow the ground and then you sow the seeds. That's they did the other way. And thus the sower who lets seed fall on the ground, the path, uh, and among the thorns is not as careless as he may seem. The seeds scattered on the rough ground that villagers have trod through the fields will be plowed back in. And likewise, the seeds scattered among last year's withered thorns. The sower cannot tell by sight where the underlying rock lies close to the surface. And so he scatters liberally, knowing that some seeds will miss the mark. 
So all of this is fairly ordinary, though. If Jesus were to close his teaching at this point, which he basically does, the folks in the crowd would surely be turning to each other and saying, what was the point of that? Like he just told us an ordinary story about a farmer. And there's, there's little that would have been considered remarkable, except perhaps the yield. So the average return for the Jordan Valley was about tenfold. And so a 30 or 60 return would have been notable. A hundred would have been remarkable. But Jesus doesn't actually say anything more to the crowd other than whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. Whoever has ears to listen, listen should pay attention, which echoes the Old Testament prophets imploring the people of Israel to pay attention, to notice what God is doing, what, what God is saying. And so still, the people in the crowd would have been like, what are we supposed to be paying attention to? You just told us a story about an ordinary farmer. It's only afterwards, Mark 10, when they were alone, the people around Jesus, along with the 12, so... There was the crowd and there were the, the disciples, which included the twelve. They asked him about parables. And he said to them, the secret of God's kingdom has been given to you. But those, to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. This is so that they can look and see but have no insight and they can hear but not understand. Otherwise, they might turn their lives around and be forgiven. Now again, Jesus is echoing the words of an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. And here it's uh, Isaiah, whom God sent to the people of Israel, knowing that not all would hear and listen and turn back to God. In one sense, it's a description of the spectrum of response to God at all times and here to Jesus, that there will be and there already have been those who see what Jesus is doing in terms of healing and, 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 and casting out demons, but they don't perceive at the deeper level what's going on in terms of the, the, the heralding, the inaugurating of God's kingdom. There are those who hear Jesus' words but don't understand them, don't reflect on them, don't make them their own, don't put them into practice. There are and have been those who just aren't ready to turn and be forgiven. It can be a bit jarring to hear Jesus talk about outsiders, though. It's a little bit jarring to me. You know, God so loved the world. Right? Jesus welcomes all and loves all and, 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 and heals all, and God's grace is for everyone. And, when we hear, or when I hear talk of insiders and outsiders, it can make me feel uncomfortable. But one of the themes of Mark's gospel is discipleship. Discipleship. This is the idea that Jesus invites people, all of us, to follow, up, to follow him, to be with him, to learn from him, to live like him, to go out in his name and with his authority to preach the good news and to cast out unclean spirits and perhaps even to be persecuted as he was, to endure suffering because we choose the way of love over the way of convenience. And well, all of that takes effort, doesn't it? All of that takes intention. It is not the path of least resistance. We do not drift into maturity. We do not drift into selflessness. We do not drift into thinking of others first. We do not drift into joy and hope. We do not drift into resisting the destructive myths and dehumanizing narratives of the culture around us and the world that we live in. We must choose 
again and again and again and again. We must choose. That is discipleship. Learning to live as Jesus would if he were in our place. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of an athlete training in Christ-likeness. Training in Christ-likeness. The theological term for this is sanctification. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And be clear, not in order to earn God's favor or forgiveness or approval, but because we already have all of that and because we want more. We want to experience the fullness of life in God. The problem is that, that much of American Christianity, and particularly white evangelical American Christianity, has focused solely on what's called justification or conversion, which takes place whenever a decision to receive Christ is made. When our sin is, is forgiven, our relationship with God is set right, and we are declared righteous because of Christ's sacrifice. For those who are familiar with evangelical culture or who came out of it, that's the point when we might pray the sinner's prayer. Where we invite Jesus into our lives, we acknowledge our wrongdoing, and we receive the redemption Jesus won on the cross. Now, if you're like me, you might have prayed that multiple times. <laughs> or multiple points of conversion. Because I would pray, I would pray the prayer, and then, you know, like... I'd screw up, and then I'd feel like I need to, well, I need to start all over again. Uh, you know, so then I prayed again, and the cycle would repeat itself. Because I hadn't been taught that justification, that, that moment of conversion, that, that moment of what some might caricature as getting my ticket to the afterlife, that, that, that they're not the end of the story. They're the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of a partnership with the God who created the universe. It's the beginning of a process of being formed by the God who is love into one who lives and loves as Jesus did. Justification is putting one's trust in Jesus, and that is good, and it is right, and it is to be celebrated. Sanctification is learning to put one's trust in Jesus every moment of every day. That's not to say that we don't still screw up, that we don't still need to come back to God, that we don't still need redos, but we're able to recognize the journey and the process, the growth, and the work of the Spirit to uproot our sinful habits and patterns, our unhealthy coping mechanisms and stress responses, our toxic conflict avoiding or initiating. The truth that all are loved and all are welcome, and all are invited. Such a beautiful, soul-changing truth. We get to see that in Jesus' ministry. The crowds who came to him experienced his healing. They got to hear what he had to say. The gift of God's grace and the forgiveness of sin are available to all. The welcome of God's kingdom is available to all of us who used to be enemies of God. The freedom from spiritual oppression is available to all. The efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice is available to all. The crowd just shows up and by showing up says, yes, thanks be to God. And there's more. Jesus invites us to more. It's so good to receive God's grace. So good. And Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So how are you doing at giving grace? 
It's so good as one who was once far from God to be brought near and called a friend of God, a child of God, part of the family of God. And, 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 and Jesus says, now go love your enemies. For in so doing, you will become like your Father in heaven. There's more. It's so good to, to receive the blessing of Jesus' sacrifice, to be served by the King of kings, and yet he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he washes his disciples' feet, and he tells his disciples, including all of us now, to love one another in the same way. There's more. You can be in the crowd. You're welcome there. But Jesus invites you to become a disciple. You can be healed. Jesus will meet you there. But Jesus invites you then to join him in the healing work. You can be freed. You can be set free. You can be liberated. But Jesus invites you to become now a freedom fighter. To search and work for the liberation of all. You can know peace. You can. And now Jesus invites you to be a peacemaker. There's more, and it requires more of us, too, because growth happens just beyond the edge of our comfort zone. Growth happens just beyond the edge of our comfort zone. Maturity requires us to refuse the path of least resistance and instead to self-sacrificially stretch from selfishness past self-centeredness to step toward love when apathy is easier, to step toward what is right and good when what is evil seems stronger, to step toward what is noble when what is dehumanizing offers itself, to step toward what is holy when sameness beckons, to step toward what is just and brave when it may demand our very lives. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we're invited into because that is what remakes the world. The secret of God's kingdom has been given to you, Jesus said. The secret looks like Jesus. The one to whom we are invited to apprentice ourselves, to choose to learn, to live and love as he did, trying and failing and trying again and, and yet refusing to give up, like, like the ice skater who practices that one move until she hits it every time. Or the quarterback who practices that throw so that he can pull it off in the big game. Or to leave the sports metaphors, the person who chooses to reach out and care for the friend who may not deserve it because we will not give up on each other that easy. Or those who choose to give their lives in opposing evil so that others might live. What is the more that Jesus is inviting you into? What is the more that Jesus is inviting you into? As you consider that, that question, let's finish the passage. Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. The farmer scatters the word. This is the meaning of the seed that fell on the path. When the word is scattered and people hear it, right away Satan comes and steals the word that was planted in them. Here's the meaning of the seed that fell on rocky ground. When people hear the word, they immediately receive it joyfully. Because they have no roots, they last for only a little while. When they experience distress or abuse because of the word, they immediately fall away. 
Others are like the seeds scattered among the thorny plants. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of this life, the false appeal of wealth, and the desire for more things break in and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The seeds scattered on good soil are those who hear the word and embrace it. They bear fruit. In one case, a yield of 30 to 1, in another case, 60 to 1, and in another case, 100 to 1. Now, one uh, reading of this parable that I heard often in my, in my younger years is that we are meant to be the sowers. We're meant to go out and share the good news indiscriminately with everyone, knowing that not everyone will uh, be receptive to it, but some will, and it will be a great harvest. Then about a decade ago, one of the most personally moving readings of the parable was the consideration of what it means for me to be good soil. What it means for us to be good soil, to be receptive to the word that we receive. You know, that good soil is cultivated. It has to be worked on. A good soil is a result of a mixture of death and excrement and bacteria and worms and insects, of things that are outside of our control, like climate patterns and weather patterns. Those are both good. They're both valid uh, takeaways. And as I said earlier, parables can have multiple meanings. And maybe one of those is what you need to hear this morning. But as I reflected on Jesus' words here and conversations I've had with many of you over the course of the pandemic and even on my own life, uh, I don't read these conditions with the same judgment or judgmentalism that I might have early in earlier days. Um, in, in this season of life, I read Jesus' interpretations of these seeds and soils as, as, as just purely descriptive. This is what happens. This is what can happen. We know that it happens. And we know, likely in our own experiences, why it might happen. There, we can think of the reasons why it happens. Sometimes the enemy does steal our joy. And it seems there is nothing we can do to stop Sometimes we do respond to the Word of God with enthusiasm. And then ingrained habits are harder to break than we thought they would be. Or the inner work feels too hard or too much. Sometimes all the things around us and in front of us, the, the entertainment, the numbing options, the anxieties that are brought on by debt and doubt and war and injustice and oppression and racial ignorance and animus, they're just too much. They just feel too much. That phrase, the worries of this life, is literally translated the anxieties of this age. And let me tell you, I have never felt that. I understood that concept more than I have these last couple of years. The anxieties of this age. And yet the parable ends with a harvest. It ends with a bounty. It ends with abundance. In the words of Cuban-American theologian Justo Gonzalez, the parable is about the awesome power of the Word of God, capable of producing the unexpected and even the almost impossible. The parable is a promise to all listeners, the curious, the enthusiastic, the fickle, and the stalwart, that God's harvest will come to fruition. That God's harvest will come to fruition and that neither rocks nor the birds of the air nor even the devil himself can prevent it. It's a parable of hope. It's a parable 
that promises a final harvest that is inconceivable by our usual standard. So friends and family, there is hope. There is always hope. There is always the possibility of a harvest. There is always the invitation to more and the promise of more than enough. And so this parable is both a reminder of the providence of the God who is bigger than all of our problems and all of the evil and all of the suffering and all of the bullies with too much power in their hands right now. And it is a reminder that we are invited to play a part. We're invited to participate. That no matter what season we find ourselves in, no matter what muscles have atrophied in the course of the pandemic, no matter what situation or mistake or failure or circumstance we think has disqualified us from being good soil again, there is the opportunity to return. In the words of of Jesus in Mark, to repent and believe. And remember, to repent and believe is not about guilt or shame. It is a decision to change our hearts and lives and minds in light of the good news that Jesus and his kingdom are near. And so to return to the previous question, what is the more that Jesus is inviting you into? Lent begins on Wednesday. So this is as good a time as any. Make some God-inspired changes. Is there something God may be asking you to give up? Or a practice you can take on so that you can arrest some of the spiritual laziness that has crept in, understandably, in the midst of you know, the challenges of virtual church and online small groups? Is it something to do with your body, a temple of the Holy Spirit? Something to do with with what you're eating or not eating, something to do with what you're doing with with your body, with activity or or how you look at yourself. Is it something to do with what you're feeding your mind, what you're dwelling on, what you're watching or reading or listening to? Is it it something to do with relationships? The last couple years have wreaked so much havoc on so many friendships because we had to turtle in. We had to figure out who was in our pod, and it had to be small. And, and so, so many people weren't. And again, completely understandable, right? That's what we were told to do. But now we look up and it's been two years and, and neither of us have reached out. Neither of us, and no one wants to make the first move. Because it's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. Make the first move, y'all. Let me encourage you to stretch those muscles, the spiritual, physical, emotional, relational muscles that have atrophied and become cramped these last couple of years. Slowly, sure, but surely too. Let me also add this challenge via a quote from author Bell Hooks. She says, I'm often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little to the practice of love within the context of community. So little to the practice of love within the context of community. So what does it look like to practice love in the context of our community? 
you know, we don't, we don't have a, a membership process here where we tell you all the things that, you know, it means to be a member here and you sign up, whatever. I don't know. We don't do it, so I don't know what we do. Uh, <laughs> but what we say is you show by your actions that this is your church home. You show up in whatever ways you can when we gather. It might be online. It might be saying hi in the chat. And it feels weird to post a comment in the chat saying hi and you don't even know who's out there. But it could be that one thing that reminds somebody that they're watching with somebody else. Or even in this space. We invite people to be part of a small group. Because in so doing, we demonstrate our commitment to our own discipleship, and we recognize that mutual discipleship that happens only in community. We invite you to support the work of the church financially as you're able, because in so doing, we commit ourselves to this thing. Our, our, our money says so much about our priorities. And fourth, by, by showing up, by serving. Whether on a ministry team here, because in so doing, we recognize that we are the church, that we all have a part to play to share the load, or in any of the, the efforts that we have in our neighborhood and in this, you know, serving with minor mutual aid or advocating for affordable housing, like any and all of those things are part of what it means to, to practice love in this community. And that, that's not an exhaustive list, you know? I know, this, this can feel like a bit of an emotional downer to go from, there's more and there's always hope to, now what practically are you going to do? I'm okay with that, actually. Because I want you to be clear-eyed in your response. I want you to take time to think about, to pray about, to reflect on, to, you know, to... To be aware of, not just caught up in the emotions and, and what I'm going to do next and all, because what will happen is when you come down from those emotions, the will to do those things will also drain away. So what areas of your life is God drawing you into, asking you to, to stretch more, to, to give more, to show up more, to risk more? I want you to be intentional. I want you to consider specifics. Specific practices and habits you want to take on or specific lies you're believing. Specific addictions you want to uproot for good. So we're going to start right here, right now. We're going to take a moment of silence. This is Matthew Watson's favorite practice that I invite us to do. He really hates it. But we, we're going to take a minute of silence so that I'm not speaking and we're just letting God speak, the Holy Spirit speak. Whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. 